Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, go to barrykatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard from Montreal, Canada. Very exciting times up here. Great festival, great podcast. Godfrey, one of the funniest, most talented stand-up comedian actors you will ever, ever meet. I tell you, you're going to have a great time today. You're going to learn a lot about how to get to the next level, and you're going to learn a lot about how not to get to the next level. And it's all wrapped up into one little bow. Before I get started, I want to thank you guys so much again. Big things are happening on the podcast, all because of you. Got a lot of great announcements coming up. I'm very excited, and it's just been incredible. And it's all because of you guys. I'll never stop saying it. I'm so grateful. Thank you so, so much. And so as I look across from Godfrey... It's a unique feeling I have inside because he's the kind of guy who has so much natural ability and so much God-given charisma and so much ease and comfort in the craft of stand-up, along with a work ethic that just continually gets him out of the house and into the clubs almost every single night, a lot of times for multiple shows, even after this many years in stand-up. And it's something that you can't teach. You can't teach charisma. You can't teach how to have a natural flow in stand-up. You can't teach how to have a God-given gift to be able to do great things and book jobs right away without really any training. It's just a special thing that happens with certain people. And this is one of those 
times when I'm doing this cold open where I see a lot of people who have Godfrey's God-given talents. I remember when I was a swimmer, I worked so hard in practice, but there was always this one kid who just flopped around in the water, didn't really do anything, yet he won every race, every single race. And I was good, and I won my share of races, but I wasn't anywhere near as gifted as he was, and he had this natural talent for swimming that I've yet to see since. But he never really gave it his all 100%. He was always in a situation where he didn't push himself as hard as he possibly could. And even though he won every race, when it came time for the championships that year in my senior year, I'll never forget watching him swimming and watching another swimmer pass him at the very last second and touch him out at the wall to win the championship. And it just let me know that no matter how much talent, charisma, and effortless ability God gives you, you still have to go in and work hard every day and pretend that God didn't give you those things or whatever higher power you believe in. And when I look at Godfrey, I know we're going to be in a situation, him and I, we're going to talk about a bunch of things because he's the kind of guy who is like a paradox. He has all these things going for him. Essentially on paper, it always appears like he's out in the clubs and just pounding the pavement and working out that new material. But there's another side of him at his home club at the Comedy Cellar that sometimes can be a distraction like everybody has in their lives. Maybe we look at the computer a little too much, maybe go on Sports Center too many times over and over again, or maybe we just do things that make us happy, but we do them a little too much and it takes away from the time we spend on our craft. But at the end of the day, if you have the skill set, you have the charisma, you have the work ethic, even those difficult distractions that keep you away from things can keep you on a track to get you a ton of success. The formula for success is giving as much as you can to your profession, as much as your bandwidth as you can, without taking away from the enjoyment of your life on the personal side. And if you can figure out that balance and make it work, you'll have a chance at the kind of career that Godfrey has. Here we go in three, two. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Creating holy shit moments. Undeniable. You're fucking firing me up, Katz. I love this man. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Out of the air! Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. 
Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard. Very excited today. My guest, Godfrey. You're going to love this guy. Great stories. Great personality. One of the true originals in this profession. So without further ado, let's introduce him. And hopefully, we'll all still be awake afterwards. I'll try to make it short. Godfrey is an American comedian and actor. While performing impressions of his college football teammates, he realized his irreverent style of comedy might be more than just a hobby, and eventually found his passion in stand-up. After graduating from college with a degree in psychology, he moved to New York City and landed a prestigious warm-up studio audience gig for none other than one of the biggest shows on television, The Cosby Show. As one of the most dominant forces in the comedy circuit then and now, Godfrey has been seen on stages all over the world, from New York to Los Angeles to Dubai. Along with his own one-hour comedy special on Comedy Central, Godfrey's credits include Zoolander, 30 Rock, and a really, really great recurring role on Louis C.K.'s hit show, Louis. Godfrey also starred alongside Shaquille O'Neal on the True Series Upload. Ladies and gentlemen, it's my pleasure to introduce one of the funniest, most authentic comedians I know, Godfrey. Hey, little applause. I guess you'll have like sound effects. Clap, 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 clap. No, actually, we bring Michael Winslow in afterwards to read. Oh, no. So I'm not even me, ugh, on Michael, but. I didn't mean to, that's so that's so New York comedy seller of me. Ugh, <laughs> <laughs> hanging around them New York comics, we just oh we always shit on people so quickly. Ugh, Michael Winslow. Michael was the shit though. In the eighties, I mean, with his little noises and shit. But I heard he like I heard like some people have seen him and he's still kind of even his sounds are dated. Like <laughs> he's still doing. <laughs> That's a payphone. What? <laughs> I'm like, don't you have cell phone noises? The fuck is wrong with you? No. <laughs> I heard he's like dated in his sounds. It's like That's weird. Funny. Like you would think he would update new sounds. <laughs> like, <laughs> don't you know what a laptop sounds like? Can't you do the click? He's like, ching, old typewriter. Fuck are you doing? I don't know. Because he, some of those, that's what's scary. If I was a sound guy, I would be like, let me go outside. Just get some new sounds. <laughs> I think that I think you should boo a motherfucker off if he's doing sounds from the eighties and hasn't updated his <laughs> shit. He's like, "What's that? Xerox copier? Fuck, are you doing? What? What about a scanner? What about? <laughs> there, you know what I mean? Get some updated sounds. That's that's creepy when you're in a time warp in comedy. That's scary shit. Well, you're at the clubs all the time, yes. every single night. Yes. When's the last time you actually took a night off? It was sometime in the year. I know I did it one time. And how did you feel? <laughs> I felt okay. I'm, I've been try, trying to do that sometimes. I felt okay. It used to be multiple sets in one night, you know, in New York. What do you mean used to be? I mean, it still is. But I don't do that anymore. I used to do, oh, I have to do like five or six a night. I have to get my five or six in. You know what I mean? 
It was that. You know, when the Boston Comedy Club was around, you know that. Of course. That's your joint. You founded the Boston Comedy Club, which was on West Third Street. It was right next to the firehouse that Anderson Cooper just bought just, yeah. and the famous Italian restaurant, Il Molino. El Molino's, where people don't come back out alive. No, Cosby <laughs> used to go in there and then stop by the Great club bitches, and just... Right there. <laughs> Let's go get some spaghetti. All right. Time to get some spaghetti. It's like, you like Italian? Me too, boy. Bada bing, bada boom. Go on in there, get some meatballs. You want some meatballs? Get into the meatballs and a cannoli. Everybody likes cannoli because it's long, got the cream in the middle. Oh, boy. It's going to be good. Here we go. Arrivederci, bitch. You know the sounds you make in between the words. You just realize that actually probably sounds like the woman who's on the drug in the tail end of going being passed out. It's like that. There you go. Getting dizzy. Getting sleepy. There again. Oh boy. Here it goes. Oh no. It all. That's the last thing they see before they knock out. Oh. Oh, and then they wake up. What's happening? Here, oh, boy. Here comes the pudding. <laughs> this is what I don't understand, and I want you to explain yes. it to you. This is a guy who had millions and millions of dollars. No doubt. Let's pretend you have a social issue and you can't really talk to girls that well. At that time, it's available for $200 or $300. <laughs> right, right. So why do you need to drug somebody when you can just pay for it? I think it's I think it's a mental problem. I think there's something in you. it's it's a when it's that at that level, it's something is me, it's mental, man. There's it's there's something wrong. It's a deep-seated anger or it's a power thing. You know, I think when people have power, there's a megalomaniacal thing that happens to a person. It's like it's like what's your what's your what's your boy's name? I know like Jewish people don't like to hear about it, but that dude, you know that dude, the Charlie Chaplin mustache, that guy, Hitler. Oh, that dude. I saw a documentary on Hitler. It was called The Rise of the Nazi Party. It was really interesting. You know, there's so many documentaries on Hitler. So many. They come at different angles. Hitler's shoes. Hitler's basketball. Team, <laughs> Hitler's. But this one was really thorough and good. And I watched it. I said, ah, "Let me just watch it." And I watched it, and it was funny because. He started off as a, a regular dude. Like he was like had he was a he was a corny dude, was bullied. Then he he had complaints about certain things. Kind of like Trump. Right. He was one of those guys. But he Trump had money at least. But he didn't. But he actually he got into power slowly. He kind of made friends with people. He was like tried to play like he was a nice guy. He was complaining about the rents were too high. You know what I mean? He was talking about all oh, the Jewish people, they're charging us too much rent and all this other stuff. They're cheating us. Money. It was all this crap. So when he finally got like, he started getting some prominence and stuff like that, he really lost his mind. He went he went crazy. He, he got what he wanted. Then he really snapped. You know what I mean? That's when he did that horrible shit that he did. And I think that when people get power, I'm telling you, I, I really believe when people get a certain amount of power, it's like you're saying, like Trump, there's something that clicks in their brain and going, fuck, I need more. And I think Cosby, Cosby didn't have to do that shit. I mean, not, I, I knew, listen, I worked, remember, I, I don't know if you, I worked on the Cosby show. I was warm up. You know those warm ups. 
the warm-up job for a comedian on a television show is one step above organ grinder. Essentially, what's happening is you have a sitcom that's being filmed in front of a live audience, and at every break, after every scene, you have to keep the crowd engaged and happy and laughing. And if your show is one like the Cosby show, where Cosby was the kind of actor, he was an anomaly. If there was something that wasn't right in the script, instead of working on it in the room, he would always tell his executive producers, I'll fix it on the floor. And they would say, but Bill, the other actors, they don't know what you're going to do. I'll fix it on the floor. And so when you have an I'll fix it on the floor guy, who is an iconic guy who the network has no control over, the tapings go from two hours to three hours to four hours to five hours to six hours. And the warm-up comic is stretched to no end. Cosby's warm-up people were fired over and over and over again because they couldn't handle that kind of situation. It was relatively impossible. And so you were eviscerated by him and taken out, and it's like you were renting the chair of the warm-up person yeah. because it was next to impossible to figure out how to keep them entertained mm-hmm. for that long. And when he yeah. saw people leaving, yeah. you're gone. Yeah. Lastly, Godfrey is one of the only warm-up people in the history of the time I've been in comedy that got out and booked significant acting jobs and significant stand-up gigs and significant films. I can't find or think of one other person that's really gone and done as much as him from that position. Yeah. I stayed for uh, the season. I did my job, and you're right about the stretch. He's his breaks were un man twenty thirty minutes man, and you're sitting up there, and I would just talk out of my ass. There was a point where I was I don't even know how my mouth was moving. I was like I was just making up shit. I mean, hey, what do you, who likes toilet paper? Yeah, <laughs> that's crazy, right? I, I was just I remember one time I was killing so hard. I was killing. I was I remember one time I was imitating him, and you know the whole place is mic'd up so they can hear you warming up the show. And I remember he came out from behind me. I was imitating him, and he came out from behind. But I thought, I, I was turned to the audience, and I get this big rise in laughter. Like, I was like, damn, I'm murdering right now. And and they were like, they, everyone started pointing. I go, oh, shit. And Cosby's like looking at me like, I don't talk like that. What are you doing? <laughs> now, was he the kind of person similarly to frank sinatra where you called frank sinatra mr sinatra call, you call, call him, him dr, dr. Cosby. cosby that's right you call him Ms. dr c dr cosby yeah yeah it would be dr cosby or dr c not one person on the set called him bill no fuck no not even the actors nope they call him dr cosby and i don't i didn't really listen to what the because it was madeline khan at the time there so she was her own legend felicia rashad Dougie Doug, or, and I and I didn't hear them say, I didn't I didn't I didn't see them interact with him because I wasn't around that. I just saw them when they were filming, so I don't know what they could have been doing backstage, you know. But I know everybody else that was working on the set called him Doctor Cosby, Doctor Cosby, and he was and, and and I was there when his uh, son was murdered, you know, 
So his son was murdered. I was there. Mike Epps was my roommate at the time. Were you guys on set when it happened? No, I had come to work. You know, like you have to come in the afternoon around three. This is before information was disseminated so quickly in the world. Right. So I went and I, I was living in Queens already. So I walked to Kaufman Astoria Studios right next door to Sesame Street, folks, just to let you all know. If there's someone says, can you tell me how to get? I knew how to fucking get there. <laughs> so the secret was busted, Jack. That shit, I answered that bitch-ass question. <laughs> that was a long question for years, right? Can you tell me how to get? That's right. Queens, bitch. Take the NR train. Get off of Queens, Queensboro Plaza. You know what I mean? And get disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> so I, um, so yeah, so I went there and it, it was, uh, the, the studio was empty. And I said, oh, where's Dr. Cosby? He said, oh, he had an emergency. I said, oh, okay. I, he said, I, we think we're going to cancel today. I said, oh, okay, I'll just go back home because I could walk. So I was like, all right. And I turn on TV, boom, because I'm a TV guy. Boom, boom. And I see all this. Every news channel has Cosby, Ennis Cosby. And it's good. that's how I found out. You know what I mean? But then he came back a week later, like just a week later. And he did uh, a monologue on burying his son. Like he did a, an act, like a jokes on it in front of the crowd in before front the of show the started. Damn crowd! He murdered that shit too. That shit was crazy. He did like 15, 20 minutes, came out and did a fucking set, man. And then I had to follow that shit. <laughs> he would toss the mic because there was a point. I'm not gonna lie, where I was, I was, I was really doing well. I was like, I would just come out of my ass with jokes, but I was killing, boom, boom, and and Cosby there, and Cosby wasn't coming out at the time. He would just be back in, you know, backstage. Man, there was a time I was getting applause breaks and Cosby was like, he started coming out doing sets. He would come out and do sets before me and then toss the mic and go follow that. I'm not even bullshitting you. I remember I was like, <laughs> I was like, why is he coming out? He came out to do monologue. He came out doing his little shit. <laughs> toss the mic and he'll look at me and go, Yep. It's like I brought him out as a challenge. And I'm like, I'm four years in. The fuck? <laughs> this guy is the one we aspire to. Richard Pryor wanted to be like you. And he's like challenging. It's almost like he was challenging me, which was great. I got to see him do a monologue because he would come out and do monologues. You know what I mean? Just it was like it was like it's, it's as if I'm slam dunk and I'm doing dunks. And, and LeBron comes out and goes, oh, I'm just going to dunk too real quick. Just to let you know who's king. Incredible. Isn't that incredible? And after that, most of the day would be on a Thursday, right? And, you know, we had two shows. You had the pre-show uh, tape, and then they do the second show, which went on till like 12, in the, 12 midnight or whatever. And I would do like eight hours, maybe an hour break for lunch. And then I would, after I finished eight hours, my brain was short-circuiting. I was so tired. I would go to the Boston Comedy Club and do my 130 spot right after that. <laughs> wow yep i would do that i'd be like shit i'm just getting it in i'm gonna go hard as i can you tell, know cosby comes back a week after his son yeah dies. man tell me the first thing you said to him when you got him alone I, after his son passed away let me tell you what i did you could he had an open like his door was always open for his office you could just walk in because i was like yeah hey, can i talk to cosby and i just walked in i didn't bring up that I, all I brought up was comedy advice 
I just kept, hey, Mr. Cosby. And he had his cigar. Shit. He's like, hey, what's that? Came in. And I just said, hey, I've been doing comedy like four years or whatever. Um, just can I get some advice? <laughs> I said, I just want advice. I don't care. I don't care if you tell me whatever. He goes, okay. And he was talking about writing. He said, I wish other comedians were in the room with me. He was very Cosby. He was like, you got to write. You got to put your ideas on the paper. I remember this shit. You got to put it on the paper, man. You got to write. Writing is the key. It's the key. Then he goes, and he has a cigar, and he goes, you remember, you know, Sinbad, right? Sinbad. I said, yeah, I love Sinbad. He goes, he knocks it out the park, man. Knocks it out the park. He's talking about Sinbad. Then he goes, look at, look at the word. This is a business. He said, look at the word show business. I said, okay, show business. He goes, which word is bigger? I said, business. He goes, always remember that. That's the bigger word. The show, that ain't shit. The business, this is a business, and you got to write. Writing is the, and then I said, well, sometimes when I have a joke, like I, I have one joke, and um, I don't know what to do with it. I go, and he goes, don't get rid of anything. He says, because as you grow as a comedian, he says, it's like the ABCs, but it's out of order. You know, he'd be like this. Sometimes you'll get your A, then sometimes you get your T, then you get your, but when you start, when you're getting in the groove and you do it long enough, you get to A, to, to B, to, to C. I'm not even bullshitting you. I got that advice from him, man. I mean, that was a blessing to me. You know what I mean? And he never put me on his show, but anyway. <laughs> I remember him telling me a dick joke in the hallway. Just walking by, he goes, hey, I got to tell you something. I'm like, what's up? He goes, and he, it, 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 it kind of like, I was like, what? He goes, why is it that we got to wash our hands after we pee? Because your dick is in your pants the whole day. Why do we got to wash, why you got to wash your hands when your dick is clean? Oh, and he just points and walks off. I'm like, the fuck was that? <laughs> it's one of those things where you want to boo Cosby, but you can't because he's hiring you. I was like, what? He's like, why do you got to wash your hands when your dick is in your pants? Your, your dick is not dirty, but your hands are dirty. You got to put it in. What the fuck? And in my mind, I'm thinking of the tag to that joke, which is you should take your dick out and wash your dick because your hands were dirty. <laughs> and I just let it go. I'm not going to like... I'm not gonna tag Cosby. Hey Cosby, I got a tag. I got a tag for you. You're fired. Fuck out of here. I was just like, ha, and, oh, he did the pointing and shit. Oh, like he was trying to figure out a new beginning of his fucking show. Remember how every year he had a new opening? Yeah. It's like, is that an opening? But most warm-up comedians, yeah. yes. it's like heroin, okay? Because even though it's painful. Oof. It's painful. That needle is painful. <laughs> so painful. The high of being around people who are winning and people who are making thousands and thousands so of dollars a week and people who are on camera every week and huge stars. Yeah. It's like a drug. Yeah, there's pain being there, but you want to be around those people. And the money you make for the warm-up job is what many would consider to be not a lot of money but for a comic four years me, in me, it's a lot it's a shitload of money and Man. it can be as much as a thousand or fifteen hundred dollars for the night Ooh, that's a lot and some guys make thirty five hundred four thousand the really great ones who've been around for 20 years like ron pearson you get into it and you get sucked in and it's so wonderful and I you guess, feel like you're I part of show business in. 
Why did you leave? Um, it's a thankless job. It's a thankless job. And I know they were transitioning. I know they wanted to use, I think they wanted to use other people eventually, but I didn't want to, I didn't, I was done with that shit. I had done, and Dan Aykroyd, remember Dan Aykroyd had a soul man, soul man with Anthony Clark and Anthony fucking Clark. And I, I, I warmed that up for maybe one or two times. The nicest man I've ever met. That man was so nice to me. And I was like, you know, you up there busting your ass. And I'm thinking, all right, I'm gonna go. he just came. He came up to me and said, hey, man, I want to let you know you are really funny, man. Really, it's a hard. Justin, I will never forget that shit. He was so nice to me, man. So I did Soul Man, you know, and then just one or two times. And that was it. But he was just fucking nice to me, man. I was like, Dan Aykroyd. It was cool. That was nice of him. Cosby didn't do that for me. Cosby let me in his office. And he was cool. Gave me advice. But, but he was, and Cosby was actually cool, man. He was like, there was always women around, though. I know that's right. Always women hanging out. Hot women, too. And nobody forced them to be there. What was the age difference? Um, Cosby was 50, was he 50, 60 something? Oh, they were like 20 in their 20s, 20s, 30s. Like young, hot chicks, man. Who doesn't want young, hot chicks? They were legal. Shit. I thought they were for me. I thought they were warm-up ass. I thought, oh, shit. Warm-ups got hoochies and shit. I thought there was like warm-up groupies. Oh, he's the best warm-up in New York. What's up, ladies? What's up, ladies? Let me do this eight hours real quick, and I'm going to come get some. No, it was it was never that way. <laughs> do you believe he did it? Wow. After f- fucking 500 people come out, I, I kind of believed it after about 10 or 12 chicks came out. I was like, because it's the same story. And I know a, uh, an actress who it happened to, but she got out. He tried it on her, and it didn't work. After a, uh, a taping, we um, Cosby's like, hey, come over to the house. We're having an after, whatever. And who isn't going to go to Cosby's house? You're like, Cosby just invited to his, us to his house. Holy shit. How many people went, were invited? Um, it was like he invited like two or three people or whatever. Hey, we're having a little get-together, whatever, whatever. And Cosby told her specifically, yeah, bring your friend, blah, blah, blah. She goes, okay, I'll bring a friend of mine. Let's go do this, you know? So they get over there, and there's just them there. It's just them. And he, he's like, and she's like, yeah. Uh, she's like, oh, where's everybody else? He goes, no, nah, this is cool. We're just having a small little thing, you know? And so he's, she's sitting around. They're sitting around talking, and, every, and they're drinking and chilling. And all of a sudden, he goes, and it's, she goes to the restroom. She has to go to the restroom, whatever. And Cosby lives in a big ass place, you know, Upper East Side spot that he has. And she's like, I'm looking for, and it's dark and I can't find. And all of a sudden, Cosby comes, he comes, like follows and like grabs her, like tries to, you know, put it, you know, force himself on her. And she fucking got out. Yeah. That's what she told me. I was like, what? I spent some time with an amazing girl. And she told me that Tiger Woods did the same thing to her. He tried to make the moves and she left. He actually tried to do comedy and he made jokes about the penguin joke with the pants down around your ankles or whatever it is. He really tried to do jokes? Yeah, he tried to do a little comedy. So that lets you know that comedy helps you get some action sometimes. (laughs) Not then. But Tiger Woods, that's fucking sh- Don't you hate when midgets? <laughs> Come on in. Sit down. I'm with my dick out. Um, don't you hate sometimes when a famous golfer asks you up in the room and he's going to trap your ass and now he wants a fucking ass? I hate that. <laughs> Man, first of all, this was... It's, 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 listen, first of all, raping people is fucking unconscionable. That's shitty. I mean, 
of course. But there's some sometimes I think fame and power drag some people. Why are you going up to his his room? You should have been like, now I'm gonna wait down here. I'll, I'll meet you down in the hotel. What the fuck are you doing up there? That's this true. man is multi. He is golf. He is golf. My Tiger Woods has ch- changed golf. All these new people that are playing is because of Tiger Woods. Tiger Woods has changed the face of golf as far as minorities being in golf. I mean, he really has. I mean, he's not the first black golfer, but he is. It's like Michael Jordan is basketball. Michael Jordan is basketball. You know, you can't. What the fuck are you doing in his hotel, miss? You should have been down at the restaurant. This is what kills me. Why are you up there? I mean, even me, I there's girls that go, no, I don't want to go up to the hotel room. You know what I mean? Okay, that's cool. You know, I, I respect that. But don't go up to the hotel room thinking like a motherfucker ain't trying. When you walk into a hotel room, what's the first thing you see? A bed. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's going to fuck down, hopefully. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, at least, you know, I, I just... And a lot of those actresses from back in the day that complained about Cosby. First of all, why were you, why were you at his house? You know he has a wife. He talks about it in his in his act. My wife Camille, Bubba. He, you know he's married. What the fuck are you doing over there? You know what? You're an actress. You're thinking you're gonna get, you're gonna move up, right or wrong. But they don't think. I I think some of these actresses were gonna fuck him. I think so. I think they were gonna go. Yeah, fuck him. Get. But then they didn't know he was going to knock them the fuck out. You know what I mean? I think they were going to go, yes, I will. I'm going to sell myself out. But he probably didn't. They did probably didn't know he was going to take it anyway. That's one of my favorite Chris Rock lines from Top 5. It says, if you're on a first date and you're sitting on one side of the table and she's sitting yeah. on the other and there's a server coming and you're there in that position, know that at least a fraction of the girl's mind is saying, you know, there's a there's a chance I could fuck this guy. <laughs> it's the truth. <laughs> I mean, but if you're if you're in a hotel room, you come up to someone's hotel room, man. You know, you know. Out of a hundred percent of every girl that you've gotten up to your hotel room, what percentage left what? without anything happening? About um, five. Five percent. Yeah, because sometimes. Nothing happens. And I'm not a rapist. I don't do that kind of shit. You know, I've heard there's guys now where they do this thing. You can feel it's about to happen. And you just listen. Could we just make this video and you say that you're okay with us? Having hey, sex? why not? A consensual. You damn right. Or at least an audio if they don't want to see their face shown. Yeah. Say, hey, my name is blah, 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 blah. It's like a booty contract, man. It's the truth. I, I But I don't, I don't force anything. You know what I mean? I you you do the natural thing where you're like you're trying to seduce them and all that shit, and if they don't want to, I'll leave them be, shut it down. You know what I mean? It's not worth it. You know? Hey everybody, let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, 
you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. How many of the women that you meet in the club, you are like, I can't believe I'm not even using any of my standard stuff. They're ready to go. It, you know, it varies, man. Because sometimes I'll be, I'll be batting a thousand. Sometimes you'll bat a thousand. Sometimes you would, you'd strike the fuck out. I mean, it's a bigger percentage of girls you don't really want that do that for me. I know, like I get, I get like, you get like some hot women, you know, I would get like hot women, but it's a, by percentage wise, 40, maybe 40. A lot of times, I don't know. I think sometimes your act, I think my act, like, I'm, I don't know. It's hard to say because sometimes it's, you don't even have to do anything. They just like, no, they know. You can tell by at, at the, after the show, you know, when you, a girl is like, uh, she's just standing there like, and you just say, can you wait? Oh, I'll wait. <laughs> you already, you know what I mean? Um, now, what's the etiquette between, let's just take the Comedy Cellar, okay. which is a great hangout place above at the Olive Tree on McDougal in New York. Yeah. Let's just take all the regular comics who work there during those times, okay? Was there a code of ethics? In other words, if you saw Artie Fuqua Yo, talking geez. to a girl, <laughs> is it understood between all the people that he got there first and you don't go after that girl? Or is it like, hey, it's all for one, one for all? Sometimes it's that way. Sometimes you might have gone to the restroom and Artie's talking to the girl. <laughs> Usually there's a code of ethics. I have that. I believe in that. What's your code of ethics? I mean, if if someone is at a someone's talking to a girl first, first of all, you kind of assess the situation. You go up and say, "Hey, what's up? Oh, this is my friend." You you see, you make sh you always know if a guy is trying to get on a chick. They give you that look, like I'm like, oh, "Okay, you." And he's like, "I'm like, oh, okay." You have a there's a signal saying, "I'm trying to get this." Unless the girl goes, "Who's your friend?" Then you, you, I mean, it it can be like that. Oh, who's your friend? Oh, yo, my man, she likes you, not me. Sometimes you got to take that loss. Like, fuck, you got to take that loss. But then there's some guys that don't. So when a, a girl says, "Who's your friend?" That's the sign to the guy that she's talking with that yeah, it's, it's over. It's over. See you later. That's right. And I, I, I'm the type of person that will go bow out take the L but I know some dudes that'll go fuck that dude like they'll literally try to stop that from happening cock blocker shit on you I know guys that do that now like on some like yeah they literally I don't even understand why guys do that I'm, I'm a Chicago guy you know and I know one thing I, when I came to New York I saw a lot of that shit like I've seen like if a guy is with a, some girls and maybe a girl's like oh who's that guy he, he'll shit on him he'll go oh that dude's an asshole fuck that guy like literally that's to me. That's the corniest shit ever. That's like I'm an alpha male. I'm old school. I don't. I'm not. I'm not a pussy. You know what I mean. And I believe. I mean, and, and when it comes to pussy, you, if you my my father always said the one thing that's really fucking separate the downfall of men is pussy and money. And he says make sure you have codes about that shit. And I go, you're right. 
And I go, if the, if I'm if I'm with a group of girls and my and a girl goes, yo, who's your friend? I automatically go, yo, come over here, man. Yo, coming, you know what I mean? I I believe in sharing if it's not mine. You know what I mean? I'm not gonna force my way. I don't first of all, I don't force my way on any chick, you know? And I've had situations where a girl is digging me and not digging my friend, and vice versa. You know what I mean? But you gotta cut it off and go, all right. You you can you can have that, but that in, in the cellar it was like that because everybody got their share of women. Every I know one thing. This is what I know. Jim Norton. Jim Norton. He didn't play that shit. Jim Norton. When he was with a chick, he stood. He sat away from the comics. He's like, you ain't coming over. You ain't fucking me with my shit. Because some comics are disrespectful as hell. I would go to the bathroom and a comic would be talking to the girl I'm with, and but she would tell me though. You know what I mean? But if if a comic left his girlfriend. At, at the table, I would never bother. I don't do that kind of shit. I don't believe in that. That's not mine. There's plenty of other women. I know comics that would do that with my, and they would tell me though. They go, yeah, he's da 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 da. And I go, well, and then I say to myself, well, what if I did that to your woman? What if I was successful though? You know what I mean? But I don't do that to people's girlfriends. I'm like, I don't do that. I am not, I'm so respectful of, you know what I mean? I just don't, I don't need your chick. You're with the girl. She says, who's your friend? And you take your ball and you go home. <laughs> An hour later, after you get off stage, the girl comes up to you and says, why did you leave? I don't understand. I just asked who your friend was and you left. I want to be with you. Oh, no, I've never had that. Bro. I've never. I mean, I don't. I don't. I cannot. I don't. I'm not saying it can't happen. But I remember. Oh, did, no, that wasn't a. I, yeah. I, I, no, I've never had a girl do that. But I've had a girl. I thought that I liked her and she liked, she liked me, but she fucked another dude, but didn't, you know what I mean? But it wasn't like I was her, her boyfriend or anything, but she ended up liking someone else. There's some girls that go, they go, I'm going, I, women know who they want to fuck, man. They know, you know that already. They already know they're going to fuck you before they leave the house, man. They know, <laughs> they know they're going to not, they know they're going to tease you. They have control. You know what I mean? They have control. And they know they do because we have the testosterone. They know what gets us crazy. I'm, women have the control, man. And that's why I think that that situation, those situations like that, are what a guy like Cosby goes, all right, I'm going to let you know how much power I have. I'm going to fucking take it. It's, it, it, must, it. It has to be a deep-seated hatred for women. The comedy seller, among all other places in the yeah. world for comedians, mm -hmm. To me, it's a fascinating ecosystem. It's unbelievable. Because you talk about power. What happens is when you first start going there, mm -hmm. Manny, Manny Dorman, and now Esty, yeah. they have the power. Yes. That club, even though, as I like to say, would be, let's say, a hell gig somewhere else the way it's set up, right. is the holy grail to new york yeah, city right. comics it's like what letterman show was to comics yeah. in the 80s and 90s yeah. Yeah. so in the beginning there's the power struggle between how do i get more spots yeah. how do i move up yeah and how do i get on shows with the greatest comedians in the world yeah. because as i always say on this show show me who you're with and i'll show you who you are mm. And then you get to a stage where you've got a television show and you walk in and now you have the power. Yes. But there's a lot of failure in between mixed with that power struggle. 
and you hope that one day you're allowed to sit at that table right up at the top of the stairs to the right next to the bar you with know. Esty and Manny right. and the other comics Oof. who are bigger yeah. and that you deserve to be at that table and she waves you over or he waved you over and said, sit there. Yeah. On the other side, there's the women yeah. and the challenge to be able to find a woman that was in the crowd, talk to her and the power struggle, are you going to win and sleep with her that night yeah. or are you going to lose and she's going to win? So that club was always a dual power struggle. Yes. The personal power struggle yep. and the professional one. Yes. And there were comedians like you who went to the cellar. It was a 50-50 balance. And I'm telling this to the audience and it's hard to believe but it was just as powerful a draw for Godfrey to go to the cellar and the challenge of seeing if he could find a woman to sleep with as it was to see if he could go on and crush the crowd better and harder than the other comics that night. And there were two competitions going on simultaneously between the comics. And a lot of people don't understand or know this. Interesting. (laughs) Interesting as hell. Uh, Yeah. Um, It's it's almost it starts when you, you know, right before you even go downtown. You know, I lived all over New York City and I was always uptown somewhere and going and going. Most people were going downtown to the cellar. We're always going down to the cellar. No one really says we're going up to the cellar because the cellar's already down. So you'd always go, we're going, I'm going down to the cellar. And you would know, like, it's like, I, it's on McDougal Street, right? That's between West Third and Bleecker. If you all know the West Village. One and, block south of Washington Square Park. Yes. Across the street from NYU Law School, next to the, one of the greatest um, falafel places, Mamoon's. And next next to one of the greatest and oldest coffee shops in the history of the world, Cafe Cafe Reggio. Reggio. Cafe Reggio. They they shot Shaft, a scene in Shaft in that one. Also, one of the greatest, like, live music places, historical Cafe Wa. And one of the most historic blues places in the history of the world, the Blue Note. (laughs) That corner is sick as I love... That village is amazing. And that famous basketball court. The basketball court, the cage right there. And the worst McDonald's ever across the street. <laughs> and then there's the Village Underground, black fat black pussycat. So that, yeah, I call it Club McDougal. I would call it Club McDougal. We I called my club the Cafe Depresso. <laughs> I remember Rich Voss said it looks like a rehab for crack addicts. No, it looked like a snow lodge, for, a ski lodge for crack addicts, the Boston Comedy Club. But I'm going to tell you something about the Boston Comedy Club before we get to the Boston Comedy Club is where I've done some of my best jokes, worked out some of my best, best, my best shit. The stuff about my dad I started at the Boston Comedy Club because I would do those Tuesday nights and the empty nights, you know what I mean, where there's 10 people in there going, ha, 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 and the rest of the audience are fucking comics, and that son of a bitch stayed open, and Gina Savage would book you. I mean, all the, dude, the, the, the Boston, and then there was a guy that lived above 
who lived there forever would still complain that <laughs> motherfucker, this comedy club has been here for years and you're still bitching about noise. Sometimes he'd be in a good mood watching the show, then he'd bitch about, it's too loud. I mean, you don't get that in New York City, man. I'm, I mean, coming from Chicago, it was like a whole nother, I, would, I worked on my best because something about Boston Comedy Club, I mean, Boston Comedy Club, it, even on weekends it was packed. But the middle of the week, man, it it made you create, man. You go, man, the laughs ain't gonna get any better. Fuck it, let me do some real shit. And so I started to develop that whole shit about my father. Geraldo had been watching me and he says, man, that's that stuff you're doing is great. And Colin Quinn was like, stick with that. That's gonna separate you. That, that shit you're doing about your dad, holy fuck. I didn't know you were Nigerian, man. That was because I was at Boston. And I took those nights. I I'd go last. You know, Chappelle would be up there. Raw. We all were up there. That's that's where we really. It was like a. It was literally like a fucking boxing gym. Remember when Rocky went? <laughs> when Rocky three? When Mr. T beat the shit out of him the first time? And Rocky had to go to the hood. Remember? He, oh, yeah. and, and, and and Apollo said, "You lost your eye, Rock. You lost your eye." He goes, "What do you mean, Apollo? You lost your eye, Rock. You used to have that hunger, Rock." Really, Apollo? <laughs> I used to have that eye. <laughs> yeah, Rock used to have. And he goes and he took. Uh, remember he took Rocky to the black neighborhood, black boxing gym. Yeah. He's like, now here, see these guys? They have the eye. That was the fucking Boston Comedy Club. <laughs> that because it made you fucking like, even when you had the 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 um urban nights, man, with talent all that packed every Sunday for years. But you had to come with it there, man. David Tell did the Black Knight. Bill Burr did the, and you wonder why David Tell is one of the greatest fucking comedic minds living right now. Literally, I'm gonna say that. That's the that's uh, to me, pound for pound, that motherfucker is Mayweather, man. That dude is Coltrane. David Tell is the greatest comedic mind, man. I remember the first joke I ever heard him say was he says, I went to the Gap with my friend. He comes out of the dressing room. He's wearing overalls. He says, Dave, what go with these? And I looked at him and I said, I'll tell you what doesn't go with those. Jobs and women. <laughs> I'll never this forget that. How good. That's how David Tell is like. He's like does he almost does um he's almost like graphic design with David Tell. I know I have weird analogies, but he's like a graphic designer with jokes. Like I can literally take a sentence. Me and Dave can probably talk about a tree. And Dave will take that take the words and just put it in a place where you go, "How the fuck did you make it so much clever and so simple? We had the same exact words, same exact sentence, but you were able to redesign it." To where it was like, that was fucking brilliant. He's like a graphic designer to me. Do you ever see graphic design people? People who can just take a, the people who brand. Like if they go, I need a branding for my sneaker. And they just come up with the fucking most simple. But it was not that easy. But they just have that brain that can just make things like, wow, how the fuck did you flip the B to make it look? That's David Tell. I'm telling you, man. And I don't think I'm a bad comedian. I think I'm pretty fucking good at this shit. And I, when I see Dave, I just go... Man, it's like the dunk contest. You know, when a motherfucker dunks, you see Magic Johnson go, oh, shit. If Magic Johnson is going, God damn, if, if Jordan and those guys are backing up going, what? Something's up, man. That's what Dave Tell is, man, to me. The Boston and all these yeah. comedians started there and then they yeah. went to the cellar and places yeah, like yeah. that because I wanted to break people. I love that. I love giving people and it chance. it broke us like a motherfucker. <laughs> 
And, a t- and I remember. And I mean break and break. But it, the Boston Comedy Club like broke your spirit, <laughs> but made you come back the next day like fuck that. And when you killed it, the Boston, man, that was a earned kill, boy, because it was it was a it was a combination of 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 diner seats and leather chair. It was like the you had that leather sofa. It was a mixture. It looked like a fucking <laughs> rednecks um front yard, but. With the lights off, you couldn't tell. But it was like we'd be back there. Comics would be. It was a comics place to hang out. And then what's funny is when you have comedians as your audience, you know you got to come with it. Sometimes we're back there going, boo, fuck was that? There were fights happening there. There was a weird bathroom to the left. But you know what I mean? But when you killed, it was like you didn't even notice, man. That shit made you strong. Then you take your ass to the cellar. We would go back and forth to Boston and the cellar, which were the two hardest rooms, you know? And from there, you're doing that for years, man, doing that for years. I mean, what else? And so you're, it's like you're at the best boxing gym in the hood. And then you're like, I can knock anybody the fuck out. I don't care who you are. That's why I'm going to be honest. When I go to L.A. and these other clubs and they go, man, you got to see this guy. He's mad, really funny. I go, I just spent a month with Chappelle, Attell, Geraldo, Patrice O'Neal, the fuck are you talking about? Who's funny? Oh, him? Uh, I'm going next. <laughs> you know what I mean? You know, you know what I mean? And Jim Norton and all of us. That's why our, our attitudes are the way they are. Who's a better comic in terms of comedy? Dave Attell or Godfrey, you'd say? I mean, as far as geniuses and the way he, he, puts, he t- tells a joke, he's better. Let's face it, and the audience should know this. As a performer... Godfrey can go on after any comic in the world. I don't care if they're a guitar comic doing the greatest parodies in the world or if they're an impressionist or if they're Frankie Pace at the height of his prop comedy. (laughs) It doesn't matter. He can follow anybody. He followed Cosby after four years and killed. So in terms of the writing and stuff, how do you wake up in the morning knowing I'm never going to be able to be at that level? I, I don't ever... I don't ever feel I, I i'm okay because i enjoy seeing someone that's amazing at something i'm okay with that i love that i think it, it's it's a good thing to see that i mean i can't imagine me going because you know what you know here's the thing because a tell will watch me and say that was amazing what you did like he literally has helped me with jokes and saying you're really good you're really but he you know a tell is very aloof you know you and, and but he's one of the most humble guys and I've had a lot of conversations with Attell. And so he's seen my, and he literally compliments me on my shit. So I'm okay with going, this guy's the best, but then he likes what I do. So I'm, I'm good with that dynamic. You understand? I don't, when I wake up and go, oh, um, you know, I go, oh man, this guy's, I, I don't, it makes me want to work harder, but my brain is not like his brain, you know? It's like it's like it's like one mathematician against another mathematician. You guys, it, you're both mathematically inclined, but there's just the way I I just do formulas different than you. That is something that the brain gives you. You can't figure that shit out. You can try your best, unless you just try to act like him. Then you're stealing from him. You understand? When you have to be yourself, you're not going to be that guy. I'm not saying you're not gonna you're not gonna match his brilliance, but you, you feel where I'm coming from? It's a really hard thing to explain. I, I, I enjoy I enjoy going, damn, he's the shit, man. I enjoy that. I don't want to not 
see that. I want to see that kind of like, fuck, how do you think? Because I don't think like him. You know what I mean? But what the, what he does do for me is make me take my joke and go, I can come at a better angle with this. I don't have to be, this is too easy. Like, can I make it difficult? He influenced me a lot because there was a point where, you know, I have been, I'm always last on the seller list. Like I've, I've been on the last spot for 15 years, 16 years. I've been the last guy. When when Esty first brought me to the cellar, got I finally got in. Um, I hosted because I had energy. She made me host for like five years. I was the I was the main guy hosting for five days a week. Then Colin Quinn said, "Stop hosting so much," because he said you should start working on your act. You don't want to be hosting, and it, it keeps you choppy. So I stopped. And you know what, Esty, you have to explain why. She goes, but why? Why do you want to stop hosting? For what? You're a good host. You have good energy. Why? Why? And so I said, Esty, I just wanted. She goes, okay. You know, Esty scares everybody. So, and then Colin was right. I host every once in a while still because it's a good skill to have. But then I was, um, I started going last. I was last. I was doing the late, uh, the, the late nights and I stayed last. I said, I like the last spot. I like it because I can, first of all, nobody's really there. You can do a little extra time. And I like that the audience and the audience has seen everybody. I say, if my jokes work at a tired with a tired audience, then I know I got something. And so there was a point where Dave started coming later too. Dave Attell started coming later. He would start coming late like me. And they were like, you're always late. I go, I like being late. I don't care if the producers of Warner Brothers, I don't give a fuck. I just want to be good at this shit. You know what I mean? That's my thing. That's what's going to keep me around. And so I remember um, Attell started coming around and started booking himself later and later. So now it's me and Attell, me, Attell, or Jay Okerson. Me, we're the late guys. You know what I mean? And so from there, that's when Attell started really watching me. That's when I started getting influenced by him, too, because I was like, I want to, shit, I'm going to look at my jokes again. I'm going to find a new way to approach this. So he kind of influenced me a little bit as far as, finding the most clever way to tell the joke. I'm not going to tell it like Dave because that's the way his mind works, but I can find a Godfrey way because I'm a smart dude. Now, you just said something fascinating, yeah. and I'm going to share this with you, yeah. and I would say this if he was here. Yeah. So you said, Dave, you, Big J Okerson. Yes. You guys started being influenced by Dave. Yes, big time. I never saw his influence on you, but when I watched Jay Okerson... I saw it. I saw the nuances. Yep. I saw the rhythm. Yep. I saw a larger, bigger version of Dave Attell. He went on tour with Dave. But how many comedians or in any profession bring somebody on and encourage them and mentor them when their nuances and their whole demeanor feels like you only in a different it's, body it's, it's why it's an admiration thing it's like Chappelle with tony woods not Chappelle stealing Chappelle copied tony woods tony woods when they met in dc tony woods influenced tony woods influenced me when he took me under his wing like tony woods has influenced a lot like just i mean tony woods let's just be real that's the coolest motherfucker on a stage man i ain't never seen nobody cooler than tony woods man damn he's like the fucking Super fly. He's like, God damn it. He's like Herbie Hank. You know what I mean? That he's just the coolest dude. <laughs> that dude just gets on stage. I mean, and literally, especially in, in urban rooms where everybody's loud and energetic. Yo, suck my dick. All right, but bitch, you better. I'm a fly. Good night. Boom, boom. Give it up to my man, Chicken Wing. Give it up to my man. 
and Tony Woods would be the last guy. Chicken <laughs> Give it my head. Give it up to Ballhead. My man Ballhead and my man Ratchet, Ratchet Roy. Duke, Duke. Oh, yo, suck my dick. And then the next guy go up. Just like he said, you can suck my other dick. Oh, good night. Duke, Duke. <laughs> Give it up to my man, uh, Hot Sauce. Boy, 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 Hot Sauce was funny than a motherfucker. Now, I'm going to do the same jokes all them other motherfuckers did before I bring up this next comedian. He just reminded me. Give it up for Small Fry. <laughs> Give it up. Chug a nugget, quack, quack. Hamburger. Hamburger, cheeseburger, french fry, small fry, large coke. Give it up to sh- chocolate hot foot Sunday with peanuts. Give it up to all them motherfuckers. And then Tony would come on. And then it would be fucking chaos. It would. It was a savage fucking show. The most ghetto shit, and half these half these comics have not been raised from the ghetto. Half of them are Caribbean. Their names are Elridge and 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 and, and, and right and and then Cleveland and Johnny and and but it's Chacho Chicken Wing, and their Jamaican mothers like Cleveland. Where are you? Are you still doing comedy? You know what I mean. That was New York, and then it would be chaos. And Tony Woods. Of course, 20 minutes after the show, he's supposed to be on. You know, <laughs> Tony Woods would come on, and after you see Timbaland Boots being raised in the air from laughing, and Tony Woods would be like, what's up, everybody? My name is Tony Woods, and I'm just going to let you know I don't, I'm not really energetic, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> I may go like this, may, and he's killing. Like, <laughs> I said, this motherfucker <laughs> just got on the saxophone and just said, like, Miles Davis, man, he's the cold. I've never seen anybody cooler than that son of a bitch, man. And he's the first person to take me overseas internationally to the to to Amsterdam, because Tony is an international comedian, and he really taught me how to the pacing of of how foreigners look. I watched him, me and Tony Rock were in Amsterdam eating our balls here and there. I I was I, you know I was doing okay because I was energetic, but to watch Tony Woods kill in a Dutch audience. When comedy was kind of new, it was just like, this dude is the real deal, man. And I, you talk about a guy that's overlooked, a guy that... And you know what? Sometimes our progress in this business is also our faults, too. So I fault him, too, uh, in a way. But also, the industry, to overlook a guy like that, to me, is a fucking sacrilege. That's just how I feel. Because he's influenced a lot of us. Not only helped us, but influenced... I mean, when I see Chappelle, I go, that's Tony Woods. You know what I mean? But Chappelle, of course, is his own style, of course. But the smoking on the, the, the stage and the cigarette, that's Tony Woods, man. Just that mellow, that really mellow, cool command of the stage. And it's still energy, but it's just, man, he's the coolest motherfucker I ever met, man. That's, you know, that's, that's real shit, you know? So he's influenced us, and tell like, influenced me, but... Like you said with Jay Okerson, even way like the mic, the way Dave does the mic thing, we you, he would influence you on everything. That's from admiration. It's like your parents. You know your parents. There's some things you that are in you right now that you remind you of your dad. You go, oh fuck, my dad did that. My dad did that. It it's it's the people you look up to that you you naturally start. That's a that's a human thing to naturally follow what someone does. But then you have to eventually make it your own. You know, but he's a great influence. If someone said, hey, man, you act a little like David Tal, I'll go, great, shit. But I'm not acting like David. I'm not stealing his shit. 
My style is so different, but he did influence me to really look at a joke and go, how can I make this as clever as Godfrey can make it? You know, because when you're a comic, like, and over the years, you know, it was like me, Robert Kelly, the energetic comedian. We were the energetic comics. We had personality. We had bullshit jokes, right? And so I remember they were like, you know, when I would audition for Montreal or remember Aspen. Mm -hmm. What was that guy, Lou? Lou Viola. Lou fucking Viola. I couldn't get through to that dude for shit. All I saw was white hair, glasses, and no. That's all I saw. <laughs> That's all I saw. He had the coolest hair, and he would just say no to me all the time. And they were like, you're, I remember he told me, your, your material does not match your personality and your energy. And I used to get so fucking angry, like, this motherfucker. I'm funny, dude. Who gives you shit? And now years go by, and I understand what he meant. Now I have real material. You know, I'm a race guy. I talk about race. I have real material that matches with my energy. And my old manager, <laughs> he told me a lot of times with energetic comedians, like performers, like you got Carlin and Pryor. He goes, if you watch them over the years, there's a point where you don't need to do physical shit when it's not needed. You'll be, you'll be at a point where when you do something physical, it'll really hit because you use it as a tool and not just as a, a crutch. I remember when I was at the Boston all the time and hanging out with you. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you felt this way or not, mm. but I always felt like your step manager. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I gave great advice to you. I felt like I always tried to be a good influence I, on you. And you, I remember one time you talked to me about the business. You had a big bag of popcorn. You had this big old bag of popcorn, and you just, it's almost like you swooped in like a vampire. You're like, Godfrey. <laughs> and you're eating this popcorn it's like man you don't know all the potential you have man you don't know and you just eat i remember it was a never-ending popcorn bag it was like a cartoon popcorn you know how cartoon food never ends and you're just like oh, so i'm telling you man you have so much potential he's just eating it and and i remember you were like my step manager you actually hooked me up with some gigs i recommended you to film you a television sure job did. i was like fuck man and I didn't, I, never, I didn't tell my managers, man. I was like, I just did that gig. Fuck that. I ain't telling them shit. But you, like, respected me that much. That And I don't know. I remember Dave Becky. Remember Dave? Of course. And, you know, and I didn't, you know, as a manager, as manager, you know, you don't know. It's a fucking, it's a, it's a, uh, what is it? A coin toss, man. For those in the audience who don't know, Dave was a young manager in New York. He just mm -hmm. moved there. They gave him an office, just him mm -hmm. and an assistant when he was starting. And now, of course, Ooh, he boy. represents Kevin Hart and <sighs> Bill Burr and Louis C.K. and so Jeez, many other people. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I don't. I didn't know. You just stay loyal to who you're with. I think manager shit is... No, I didn't think I tried to steal you away no, from you your didn't, manager. But you were like, hey, you know, whenever you... I mean, you're a manager. Why wouldn't you... I mean, you're doing what you do. I just remembered something I said to you that lacked integrity. You said something that lacked integrity? No, not you, Harry. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, to you, I said, I look forward to working with you in 2017. It was like 1999 or something. <laughs> Oh, yeah, <laughs> and the thing is it's like fuck man it's like it's such a man it's such a a, a coin to, it's like it's you don't know what's gonna happen you don't know who's gonna break it's like oh no let me stick with these guys and it's it's hard, man. It's just, it's, what about the relationship between artists and the representation? Are artists ever happy with their managers or man, agents? 
I know some guys that just they, every time I talk to them, they fired somebody. <laughs> They're like, "Nah, I fired them." You're not like idiot. that. You had a manager for many, like many seven, eight years, man. Yeah. Dave, Dave Klingman, and Tom Chistaro. That's right. And then how did you break off? And who was the next person? Um, it was this. Oh, I can't remember. It was stupid as fuck. It was in L.A. This dude, Peter or something, I can't remember. I thought that they were they were L.A. dudes. I thought it was going to be something, and that was so why. So have um, you ever had a manager and agent combination that together you felt was seamless? I, I thought with Dave and Tom, it was pretty cool, man. I'm not going to say they were good dudes. They they did they tried their best. I There was some strides we made, but there was a point where I was like, there was a ceiling. It's like, nah, this is like, you guys, I don't know if you guys, because... Are you guys, do you, I mean, how many people do you know? How many people are you connected to? They did their job. Like Jason Steinberg, I worked with too. Yeah, he started as the doorman at my comedy club. You're damn right. And he gave me time on stage. I just saw him not too long. I said, you gave us time on stage, dude. I'll never forget that. Gave us college gigs. Sometimes they weren't the best. He'd be like, all right, this is what's going to happen. You're going to take a bus. Then you're going to ride a mule to the rest of the fucking gig. All right. They got them, but it's 500 bucks. But he put money in my pocket. I'm not going to ever take that from Jay. If someone says Jason Steinberg, I, I give him praise because I go, that guy, he, he got me gigs. So back then, yes. what was my reputation as a manager? Okay. Well, the positive was that you had, you, you got people on TV shows. There were, I, I would see your name on credits. I go, oh shit, that's Barry's shit. Oh damn. You know, that was, you got people on shows. You knew people, you were connected. And then, and you know how I mean, everybody imitates you. <laughs> but you never imitated I did it's like Godfrey man what's <laughs> up Godfrey man you're really really you're really talented man you should be Everyone has an invitation of Barry Esty. <laughs> Everyone has. It's either Schwarzenegger, Barry Katz. Listen, man, you're really good, man. I, I, he's like, he's like, you don't know what you're missing, man. You don't, you don't, you don't want to be a woulda, coulda, shoulda, man. We just make up shit. We all have a Barry. <laughs> Everyone has a Barry Katz in them. Then when people were leaving you, just people that were leaving you, I was like, oh shit, why are they leaving Barry? That. It resonates with you. You're leaving Barry. But then Barry's got these people still. There's some people left Barry. Why you leave Barry? Especially if it's someone you know. I left Barry. Why the fuck you leave Barry? They don't tell you specifically. They never give you an answer. Nah, but I, that's not my business. And I'm like, okay, because everybody's relationship is different. You know, you you have clients that you're doing fine with. There's some that it's like it's like dating chicks, man. Some Shit doesn't, it just didn't, didn't work. I don't know. And sometimes I look at somebody like Chappelle, such an honor yeah. working with him. And I had such a great time for eight or nine years or whatever That's it is. A, yeah. And I guess sometimes you look at things and you're like, okay, I failed because I only represented him for eight or nine years. Mm -hmm. But nobody else has represented him as a manager any more than maybe a year or something That's like true. that. That's and true. so I know... He knows my place in his life. I know his place in my life, yeah. and I'm so grateful for it. Yeah. And I look at what we had together as a success story. Yeah. And then there was a break of five or six years where he was almost recalibrating his life and his career in his own mind, planning out methodically. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And yeah. when he came back with The Chappelle Show, I was so proud and so right. excited and so yeah. happy for him i wasn't like oh god fuck that guy he left as you know 
almost everybody that I have stopped working with, I'm very friendly with, and I have great relationship. And I don't want to be that guy who holds. Because I, I just think it's a business thing. We got to make sure we know if it is a business, shit should not be taken personal. I mean, even if even if some shit went down and broke up, but after a while, it's a business, man. Like, get over that. It's if if you can get over that shit if you can. But I think that it's about amending, though. It's about amending yourself, you know. Because I even did that. Because I always thought like there were certain things that I did. Because people still question how come I'm not bigger than what I am. Like that's the running thing now. Even on Greg Fitzsimmons' podcast, they brought me up. Like people were like, "Dude, they just brought you up on Greg Fitzsimmons' podcast." On things that they can't figure out. Like, I can't figure this out. How Godfrey isn't bigger than what he is. I go, you know, I, I mean, I thought maybe, maybe I pissed some people off in the business. I don't think my reputation's that bad. I'm sure you might know. I don't think my reputation's that bad. Maybe as a young comic, you know, big mouth. You know, you're funny. You're trying to make everybody like you. I get that. That's like normal growing up mistakes. But other than just being a shitty person to people, I don't think I have that kind of reputation. I don't think so. So I thought that everybody literally, because I was getting really angry, man, because I thought everybody hated me. You know what I mean? I said, I know I don't fit the stereotypes of because they pick you by race. I don't give a fuck what anybody says. There's there's archetypes that they pick. And I go, well, I'm that guy that can be do anything. You know, that's how I felt. I was never that black guy, you know? And I was never, I, I, I always felt that I wasn't black enough for white people and I wasn't black enough for black people. That's where I'm at. I'm going to answer Greg Fitzsimmons' question oh, for shit. you. All right, tell me. Oh, shit. I knew I had to come to this bitch. Okay. Therapy, motherfucker. I'm going to tell you why. Oh, shit. You. <laughs> might not be at the place where you think you should be right now, even though you've done a lot of amazing things. Yeah. But you have to promise me you'll let me get through with my diatribe. I won't say shit. Okay. You want you need some popcorn? Yes. <laughs> All right. I want you to answer this question yes. for me. Okay. I'm just going to ask you questions okay. as we go along. All right. How many years have you been a regular at the Comedy Cellar? Where you were a hangout regular and you were there and going on almost every night. 15 years. Tell me how many days a year have you done at the Comedy Cellar on average? Boy, that's a lot. That's at least 200. 200 times 15 years. That's 3,000. That's a lot of work. Now, tell me the average amount of time after a show that you spent chasing pussy. Per day. That would be... Five, six, seven hours. Okay. 3,000 times five. That's 15,000 hours. Let's put 15,000 hours in a regular, normal person's 40-hour work week, shall yes. we? That means you spent 365 work weeks chasing pussy. Now, to put that in perspective for you, let's divide that by 52. That's seven and a quarter years of your life you've spent chasing pussy when you could be working on your acting, putting monologues together, sitting down and writing sitcoms, seven and a half years of 40-hour work weeks in your career chasing pussy. Wow. And that's the reason why you're not as big as you want to be. Wow, it's pussy. Fuck yeah. That's why I watch porn now. <laughs> I I I I would I would I agree with that being one of the problems. Yeah, why not? Yeah. 
That's a great equation. That's Katz's law. You know, you just made a law, Katz's law, on why you're fucking failing. The pussy equation. You're not failing. This is what's okay. miraculous about you. You're a success story. You're in the top one or five percent of yeah. all comics in the country. Yeah. You book television jobs. You book film jobs. You book stand-up specials. You can work anywhere. Imagine if you had this seven and a half years of 40-hour work weeks. Yeah. Imagine where you'd be. Mm. And that's all I'm saying. And, and I, I, dude, I, I like this. I like honesty, see? I'm not f afraid of that shit. You know what I mean? If I didn't want honesty, I wouldn't have come here. <laughs> I came because I know it's going to be some honest shit. You know what I mean? But that's a great... You need to call it the cat's equation, man. I think you just invented it. You did. You did! <laughs> that's great. And so you're going to just calculate every time someone comes, calculate their pussy hunting. My philosophy with comics was always get in, do your set, get the fuck out. It's like a drug and you will be sucked in and before you know it, you'll be hanging out, whatever. You can be friends with these guys during the day. Right. You don't have to hang out at night and do the thing. Get in, get the fuck out. Hey, everybody. I am really, really excited. We have a new sponsor, AquaTrue. This is the first countertop water purifier using multi-stage reverse osmosis technology. I know it sounds complicated, but let's put it this way. This is something that can take your tap water and can turn it into your favorite bottled water for pennies. You're going to be enjoying the best water, the safest water. And if you haven't read all the news about Flint, Michigan, in every single state, there's over 100 chemicals found in tap water that are not even regulated by the EPA. Many of them are cancer-causing and have lead in them. So... You can go to a special website that we've set up called industrystandardwater.com. It takes you directly to the AquaTrue site. And if you get this product, you're going to get $100 off. Just type in 100 in the special code section. You'll get that money off and you'll start saving. You can put a whole huge bottle of Diet Coke in this machine. And 10 minutes later, it'll come out with the best tasting water you've ever had. I got one of these products. It was unbelievable. Industrystandardwater.com. And you'll be enjoying the best and most cost-effective water you've ever tasted. I want to go way, way back. Uh oh I want you to tell me where you grew up, the socioeconomic dynamic, okay. your family, mm -hmm. mom and dad, brothers mm -hmm. and sisters, mm -hmm. and what was your first inspiration of getting into this crazy business. Mm. Okay. Born in Nebraska, Lincoln, Nebraska. Parents come from West Africa, Nigeria. Born in Nebraska, raised in Chicago. My dad was a teacher, mom was a nurse. So it was like middle, lower middle class. And your mom was from where originally and your dad was from where originally? Both of them, Nigeria. In Lincoln, Nebraska. And then they, my father had a scholarship to a teacher's college, Dana College, in Lincoln, Nebraska. Now it's defunct. Now it's now Midwestern University because I looked it up. And um, my father got his master's in teaching and, and continued his studies in Chicago. 
and became a teacher. What's your real last name? Dan Chima. Dan Chima. Dan Chima. Godfrey Dan, Dan Chima. Chima. Yes. Got Junior. It. So my dad was Godfrey. There was only one Godfrey in entertainment that I always loved and I always watched on the Mike Douglas show, Godfrey Cambridge. Godfrey Cambridge. That's what my father used to tell me about Godfrey Cambridge. Godfrey came from Queens, New York. Watermelon man. Cotton comes to Harlem. Very smart, intelligent guy. I watched his footage. Yeah. So your mom was? A nurse. Registered nurse. ob guiding nurse. And uh, she did that for like 30 years. And we were just hardworking, blue collar, you know, disciplinarians. Um, I have older sister, younger brother. My sister was born in Nigeria. My brother was born in Chicago. And uh, yeah, man. And it was, um, so we were like lower middle class, you know, nothing, just in the middle. We got, we know, we went, you know, listen, we went to day camp. We went to camp every year. We went to all the music. We did everything that children were supposed to do. We didn't miss one step of development. That's why everybody's pretty fucking normal. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of narcissism in what we do as far as an entertainer. But I'm pretty normal compared to a lot of people. I think I'm not too bad. My parents did a really damn good job because they beat ass. Fucking. If me. you have children, will you beat I'm them? I'm gonna punch them in their fucking mouths <laughs> as babies. I'm gonna punch their little baby bellies and just go listen. I'm just gonna. I'm just tenderizing your ass. Let you know what time it is. Dab 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 dab. Shut the fuck up. Oh. <laughs> you know shit. what I mean? I I smack the baby meat. I don't give a shit. <laughs> the folds you could take it what was your first inspiration for getting into the comedy business i wanted to be a baseball player i played baseball for a while i was a shortstop i thought i'd be a baseball player um i love baseball I'm pretty good at that i have my kids play baseball it's the only sport i haven't played you know why it's a game of failure. If you can deal with seven out of ten times failing, then you're ready for you're life. Pretty, you're ready for life. And I, baseball, first they go t-ball, you know, and that's a, that's, I mean, you can't hit a ball on a cone. You ain't shit. <laughs> God damn, t-ball, you missed, I used to smack the bitch out of that ball. They used to call me Joe Morgan, God damn it. Um, I played baseball, and I thought I was going to be that. Then I thought I was going to be an astronaut. Because I love, I, I was a nerd. I was an astronomy nerd. A lot of black astronauts. There were none. And <laughs> I said, I think NASA stands for Negroes ain't supposed to be astronauts. <laughs> <laughs> That's my joke I got. about Because I tell the truth about wanting to be an astronaut, and I never was afraid to do it because there were no black ones. And I used to have that famous poster of Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin. I had the space shuttle poster. I would watch Cosmos with Carl Sagan. I, I was very, I was astronomy, jet propulsion laboratory fucking nerd. That's what, that was, that's what me. You know, the morning of 9-11, I had a meeting with Buzz Aldrin. Jeez. And I'm in Buzz Aldrin's house so watching cool. the planes wow. go in the building. And you know, my birthday is July 21st, so July 20th, that's when they landed on the moon, July 20th, supposedly, right? July 20th. <laughs> Because, you know, remember, even that one small step for man, one giant step for mankind, I just think he should have been like, we did it. We fucking did it. Oh, but it's like, remember the Hindenburg? Oh, God, it's burning. It, it should sound like a baseball game, like someone just hit a fucking homer. You land on the fucking moon. You leave the earth. You're in a rocket ship, shit in your pants, drinking Tang for fucking how many weeks? And you go, one small step for man, one giant bullshit.
I don't know. It just the excitement wasn't there for me. That's why they needed black astronauts. I I didn't want. I wanted to be an astronaut, and then it was when I got to college. I was a pre med psych major, University of Illinois. I wanted to be in psychiatry because I'm always. I'm still to this day. That's why I think comedy works because I love human behavior. Why people react to things. Why people are hateful. Why people. You know, just I. I just love. That's what's so great about being a comedian jokes just incite thought incite behavior you know and you it's almost like you're testing it it's like a psychological experiment every time you get on stage so i wanted to be into psychiatry and and then in college is when i got influenced to start to do stand-up comedy that's when i was in college like my third year i was like i was with this one chick and you know in the cafeteria in college we used to hang out and just joke on shit and talk about politics i was very militant you know, in college, that's when you're free thinking. You start, you're, you're a fake adult. You know, you're sitting up there like, dude, I'm 19 years old, living on my own. You know what I'm saying? We got to understand black people are in danger, man. You know, this government, blah, blah, blah. Then I'm like, hey, man, can I get, uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I don't, I, can you send me that care package? <laughs> you know what I mean? You're a fake adult with that fucking umbilical cord still stuck to you, man. Shit. You know, so um, I started to really free think. And then I used to hold court in, in, in the cafeteria, literally. And when I played football, I joined the football team, the University of Illinois, Big Ten. I, I walked on, went to tryouts on a bet. And I start. I was a wide receiver. Didn't start or anything. You know, I was good, but I wasn't great. I was very good, but wasn't great. So and I did the rookie show. You know, every even in the NFL, the rookies, they shave your head on purpose and then they make you do a talent show. You have to do a talent show. They do it in the NFL. So I did the talent show and I pretty much I I stole the show. I fuck they they kept me up there. These big motherfuckers like, get the stay up there. And I imitated the coaches. I told jokes. And from there, that was like, I think I want to try this shit. I think I'm gonna do it because I because my coach was like, You're you're gonna be a really good comedian. You ain't gonna play. But man, whoa, you funny. God damn. So what was your first big break in this business? Big break? I would say big break was like the 7-Up thing. That was like a big deal to me. Like to, to be a spokesperson for commercial. You know, that breaks people. It, it can either pigeonhole you. Either way, it's a, bi it's a, it's a big, it's big exposure. When I got that 7-Up thing, man, I was like, damn. And I've always wanted to be a spokesperson for an American product. Like, that looks cool. And I fucking got that. And I was in Europe when they called me for it. I was in Spain on a, naked, on a nude beach hanging out, you know, chasing bushy, doing my seven hours. I was doing, I was putting in my time, Barry, <laughs> so figure that out. Oh, I forgot. Why don't you uh, calculate the uh, pushing in Spain? <laughs> <laughs> so I was in Barcelona on a, literally on a nude beach. I had a European cell phone and my manager called me up and said they need you to come to audition for this like product, soda, whatever. And I almost was reluctant because I was like, I'm not going to be in there with 900 black dudes. Fuck that. But it was a short list of people, only like three of us. I changed my ticket because I, I had done comedy in Amsterdam. Then I just I met this chick. So I just flew over to I took a train to Barcelona. So you're on a nude beach with a girl who's nude. Nude and her friends are. Yeah. I remember that shit. That was like gangster shit. How do you keep yourself at a size that's not embarrassing on a nude beach well, with all the women? Well, because everybody, it's a nude beach, so you got to chill the fuck out. You just, like, all you do is turn your shit to the sand and stick it in there. 
and pretend like you're reading on your belly. <laughs> I've learned something to that. And then oil comes out of the fucking sand like, damn, you drilled that far down? Ay, Dios mío, it's oil. How did you do it? All the black guys drill oil in our fucking sand. <laughs> so then what followed? What was the next thing that happened? Um, I went in and then I got on that show, um, It Factor on Bravo. It was the first reality show and they followed us around New York. They did the one in LA too with Jeremy Renner was on that. Mm-hmm. Renner and all. And uh, they followed me around and it was it was like an experimental show. And I got it. I auditioned out of a couple thousand people, got it. And they audi- they followed me around, whatever. And then um, I went in for the audition for 7-Up, but they couldn't film that. They had to film me going in, and that's it. Then I came out, and, and I was on the phone. In one episode, I was on the phone, and I got the, I got the gig. This is the thing I want to share with the audience about commercial auditioning versus yeah. theatrical yeah. television and yeah. film auditioning. It's normally a cattle call of at least Oof. 100 people. Yeah, man you're hanging out with or whatever they're going in and out you're waiting and waiting and sometimes it's only one line or two lines it's like you don't even have to have an acting talent or a skill wow i don't even know if they're looking for you to say the line a certain way as they're looking for the look and the feel and the aura of you sometimes it's just like oh this redhead guy is the guy we want that's that's sometimes the look beats you out you're a Shakespearean actor. You've studied at conservatories. You've studied in London at the, the Royal Academy of Acting. You studied under the greatest acting teachers. And then you're in this fucking room going, mm-mm, good. <laughs> now lick your lips. <laughs> yummy, yummy, yummy. <laughs> and you walk out in shame, knowing, <laughs> knowing that you're better than that, but you brought your stupid ass over there because you need to get that fucking rent paid. You just did fucking King Lear in London. You just did Othello. You just did fucking to tame a sh- Taming of the Shrew. You just you just did fucking August Wilson's play. You did Tennessee Williams. You just did a whole run of, of fucking King Arthur. And you're like, yummy, yummy. Give me that burger, Lord have mercy. <laughs> and you didn't get it. <laughs> And they gave it to that fat fuck that hasn't acted ever. And he just goes, oh, man, I just decided. Why not? Let me just try it. Motherfucker. I took elocution classes. I took diction. I even walked with a book on my head to keep my posture right. And this fucker goes, I couldn't believe I booked it. Yeah, I just got like another national, another national commercial. Man, it's amazing. How are you doing? How's your life going? You fucking... And then you take the sword that you use in Key Arthur and you stab that fat fuck. You motherfucker. <laughs> fuck him. Oh, fuck, man. That's that. I just summed up the business, man. I can't believe I got another national. Man, every time you always pick me for the national. You know the one that goes, man, I love Burger King. That's me. And I just got a voiceover of the Simpsons. I got a lead voiceover. Oh, did you? How you been? Well, I'm doing this fucking play in the park. Have you seen it? Yeah, Shakespeare in the park. Um, yeah, I play the fucking bush as you sign your name on the little fucking sign-in thing. And you got to deal with that shit. You got to go, oh, how old are you? Negative 40, black, and fucking my rent isn't paid. 
Holy <laughs> shit. And you got to walk out and go, hey, you guys, break a leg. We wish you guys luck, but you really want to go, I hope you all fucking die. I want to get this. Why are you? Why did you show up? <laughs> I can't take it. And then a fucking casting director fucking hugs the person that might get the job. Hey, Mikey, what's up? She didn't say hi to me. She just told me to sign in over there. This fucker, they're going to fucking not even film me. I don't even think the fucking camera works. And then they'll tell me, can you be more like Kevin Hart and Chris Rock? You think you can be like that? Well, why didn't you hire them? You motherfucker. All black people are the same. I went to the conservatory of the Royal Academy, you motherfucker. And you gave it to, hey, man, you remember the part where you auditioned for? I got that one, too. I got another. I got four. I got four nationals. My life has really changing now. And now SNL just picked me up. I auditioned 900 times for SNL. Couldn't get it. <laughs> Fuck. You know, I, you know I auditioned like, I, 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 my first audition for SNL, I got a standing ovation and I didn't even get past the second phase at the comic strip. I didn't get shit. And then I, I went again. I, I did a table read with Colin Quinn in, um, at the NBC studios. And Marcy Klein approached me. She's because I played four characters, and she goes, "She's the executive producer of the show for yeah. many years. One of the most respected people. Yeah, she's Calvin Klein's daughter. daughter. Yes, and she saw me reading this script for Colin Quinn, and it was a table with me, Horatio Sands, Tracy Morgan, all of us. And she like came up to me, like interrupted me, like, and I didn't know who she was. And Colin Quinn was like, "That's, that's Marcy Klein, man. She, that's amazing that she came up. To, she's like, she's heard you doing all those different accents." I didn't get no. I didn't get a response from that after that. <laughs> they never. They say, "How are you not at SNL?" I wasn't chasing pussy that day neither. <laughs> Recently, like last year, they my manager now. She he goes, "You know, you'd be so good on SNL." I go, "Dude, they don't like me. They don't want. I I I've gone there. I'm not doing." And he goes, "Just put on. Put just just do a tape so I can da 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 da." So I did this little. I did this thing. And this is why your manager is right and i'll tell you why and why? just listen to this oh here you go you got it melissa via senor i know her tested when she was a young girl 21 right. then she tested a second time lauren came up to her said great job the first time she tested the second time she didn't get it she went eight years trying to see if maybe it was possible that they could do something or whatever didn't happen and this past year she, she got, got the show i know I was so your manager is right there's always a chance yes they weren't looking for melissa via senor yes they're not looking for you yes they would like to see other people out there that are newer friends but if you go in now 10 years later and just do something that is so far superior to every single person that they have on the show with your experience, there is a chance. It might not be one in 10. It might not be one in 100. It might not be one in 100,000. But let me tell you something. If I could play the lottery and have a one out of 100,000 chance of winning, I'd play every fucking day. Right, and that's true. why your manager's right. All right. It's good then. But I did it. I didn't not do it. I gave him a tape, sent him. I did some, and then they said, we love Godfrey, but da 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 I was like, that's strike three. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So I don't know. It's like they always, it always, that always comes around. SNL, I go, 
I'm not trying to be negative. I'm trying to be realistic. I don't think that they're fucking with me. I'm not taking it personal. I'm just like, I don't think they're fucking with me like that. You know, as you get older too, you're like, I mean, I still look pretty good for my age, whatever. Yeah, you look like you're 28 years yeah, old. And it's like, I didn't take it personal. And, and, and where, I, where I am in comedy now, I'm really happy where I am. And it does take 20 years. It does. It's a real craft. It's a real craft. I mean, I know nowadays, and this is nothing on the industry, they're giving people shit that aren't ready for anything. They're giving them shows left and right. And so you see all the guys that you come up with who are ready. Now, like your prime is when you've done it 15, 20 years. And you see a lot of the guys you know that are amazing, the guys and the girls that are amazing at it. And you go, wow. Like they're giving these two year comics a lot of shit, man. Jesus. Tell me three comedians that you see in the clubs that you would bet on that no one really knows about that you respect and love marina franklin marina franklin greer barnes greer barnes i know right greer barnes and um great comics yes and marina franklin greer barnes and um oh ooh, i know i got another person um oh no no not no no oh oh no they know him um i'm coming i'm coming with somebody Oh, Brian Scalero. Great comic. Brian Great Scalero. Comic. He's funny as hell. But I'm Marina, I think I see daylight with her. I, I try my best. If I know someone's good and I have a chance, whenever I'm in a meeting, whenever I bring their names up, that's what I do. I believe in that. Because this business too, Barry, you know, you can't do it by yourself. You need people that believe in you. And that's a lot and that's what's happening. That's what happens with a lot of people. Well, the game has changed though. Your social networking has changed everything. But Chappelle doesn't have any social networking and he can sell it a room by just calling but, it but remember, Ten and Sam but, coming at midnight. But remember this. He had the greatest show in Comedy Central history. Probably in history. In period. And it was dope. So don't forget that part. Okay. He had which is I mean, Chappelle's a dope comedian he's fuck he's not a bum so i'm not where i'm not like going putting him down he's the shit and he had a show that proved it you know thank god he got that before all this dumb shit happened you know what i mean i'm not saying he wouldn't have done well without the show but that he got enough in where he's good for life he don't have to worry about shit and he's making another comeback you know what i mean so I mean, I mean, I don't know. Like you see other people, you know, because they're they got YouTube followers and blah blah yeah. blah. That shit is annoying. It is. I'm not gonna lie. That shit. But you go, okay, that's the way of the world. It's like when rock and roll disappeared. And what Godfrey's alluding to that's annoying is that he's working 20 years on the craft of stand-up comedy. Yep. And a person who you have to respect the fact that they picked up a camera. And they said, I'm going to create something. Mm -hmm. yep. But within a year, some of these people have 7 million <laughs> subscribers and followers, and they've never even studied how to film anything. They've never done anything. They've nope. never been in front of a camera. Nope. But the world speaks, and the world will tell you what they like and what they don't like. That's right. And everything is different. In music, people like Barry Manilow, people like Nine Inch Nails, people like the Fugees. Yeah. And you can't question why or what, but stand-up is a craft. If you choose it, it is a long-term right. profession. It's one of the longest-term 
professions and you're constantly evolving and getting better look at lewis black the guy didn't break until he was probably 50 or something bernie mack 23 years in the trenches before things happen i want to talk to you about this amazing documentary that i worked on called i killed jfk it's centered on the only person in history to have admitted to killing john f kennedy on the grassy knoll his story the footage the interviews never been seen before you can't find them anywhere except on this documentary go to ikilljfk.com look at the trailer buy this documentary i guarantee you it will blow you away Six that, degrees of separation. Oh, I want to mention that. some names. I'm good at that. Or some things. I think I'm six degrees like Kevin Bacon. I'm 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 that dude. Just say it. what comes to mind. It could yeah. be one word. That's could be a sentence. Could be a story. Okay. Could be anything. Okay. Louis C.K. Oh damn! I did Louis. I was first two seasons of Louis. Louis also put me on um, the Chris Rock show like three times. For some reason, Louis. I don't hang with Louie. Louie's not my best friend. I don't come from his school of comedy. He's Chris Rock's. Year. That's Chris Rock and those guys. I'm with, I'm the Bill Burr, Robert Kelly. Those are my dudes and Jim Norton. But that guy put me on the Chris Rock show three times. And he put me on his first two. I was the first reoccurring character other than his main dudes on, on um, twice on his show on Louie. He, I didn't have to audition. None of that shit. Because he uses comedians he knows. That's my connection to Louie. He hooked me the fuck up. Tell me how he is as a director on the set versus other people you've worked what with. What I like about Louie is he knows exactly what the fuck he wants. And he talks to us like comedians. Like he goes, hey, you know what you need to do, right? He goes, just do, you know. And he knows every. He knows. My first episode on Louie was when we took him out to the club, me and Artie Fuqua. He, so obviously he knows our reputation. He goes, I need to do an episode where I'm trying to get some ass. And he went to me and Artie. And, he, and, and in the episode, it's like, hey, go, um, uh, what is it? Uh, Nick DiPaolo goes, go talk to the black comics. They're the ones that know how, they're smooth with women. And they, he picks me and Artie. We take them to a club that we actually shot at, that we actually used to party at. It's like Louis had been watching us for years and knows everybody. And he's very like, he's, he doesn't talk too much. He's very like, you know, Louis is a pretty quiet dude, but when he says something, he just goes, okay, you're going to sit here. Do, and even when I brought my clothes, how was this? That's fine. <laughs> it was just it was just quick and short, you know, right to the point. He just knows what he wants. You know what I mean? He, he writes everything. And you just like take his lead. How'd you like that? That's cool. Could you do it this way? Okay, good. Moves on. Very quick, very, you know, exact. And he knows every comic's demeanor and personality. And that's what makes it so good because he knows everybody and knows how everybody's going to act. And then the second season, it was the one with the niece, his niece, where um, I go on stage. (laughs) He bombs after me on purpose, of course. He bombs after me on purpose. And I go on stage. He goes, hey, man. And he told me this. He goes, I just want you to riff on shit. He goes, you can make anything funny. And that was a compliment coming from him. He's like, you can make anything funny. So... Yeah. Zoolander. <laughs> well, Ben, I was in Zoolander. I had a little cameo appearance in Zoolander. I had auditioned for Ben Stiller. And what's funny is Ben 
I auditioned for there's a part if people know Zoolander, it's a cult following. I was there was the models at the at the gas station pouring gas on themselves. I auditioned for that part, but then I went in and 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 I and he called me back because he goes, "You were too funny for that. We wanted real models with no personality." So my friend, who's his name is Osio, he's a real model. He got that part, but he goes, "I have a part for you," and he says, "Can you imitate me?" And I imitated him, the character, and then he put me in. And then after that, I told him, I asked him within my audition if he had. Um, seen judah for a part judah friedlander. friedlander who who was already in some of his movies and he called judah after that and put judah and judah plays his brother when they went to the coal mine you know he plays the brother along with vince vaughn so i brought i brought judah's name up in my audition yeah. the late madeline khan well madeline khan i want to tell you she was the sweetest lady when i was um warming up cosby she was one of the characters she was the next door neighbor and she was such a nice lady and she is a comedic legend and she was so nice to me she was very nice to me patrice o'neill oh come on that was my big brother man even though we were on the same age yeah patrice o'neill was always you know people he was he was he was um what do they call it when you it's not everybody's taste he wasn't everybody's cup of tea you know but but people don't understand patrice he was very honest but if he liked you he shit on you that's when you knew you were in like, if he goes, no, what the fuck are you wearing? You're like, I'm in. He just fucking recognized me. The Friars Club the, and the roast. The main tagline is, we only roast the ones we love. That's it. And that's why, you even with Chevy Chase, when they were trying to get people to go to his roast, nobody wanted to go. Nobody wanted to shit on Chevy Chase, so that means no one gave a fuck about him. But when Patrice O'Neal, like, we would do his barbecue every and summertime. We'd come to his house. And when you would walk towards him, he'd be he'd see people coming towards him. He would shit on you as you approached his house. He'd be like, oh, what the fuck is this motherfucker wearing? God damn. <laughs> he would shit on you. He didn't care if you were with your girlfriend. And then I met his mom. His mom shit on me. I go, well, that's where he came from. His mom was one. So Patrice was an honest and amazing comedic genius. He was... He was what I think I needed, especially as an African-American comedian, because we would have our, you know, African-American talks, man. I remember this is what this is what Patrice O'Neill told me. He told me when I was doing the Twitter thing, he goes, man, I go, man, there's some people that got so many followings, man, some followers. He goes, he goes, and, you know, Patrice would be like, nigga, let me tell you something. He said, let me tell you something. I'd rather have 20,000 of my fucking devoted fans than a hundred million of dumb motherfuckers on my shit. I don't need that shit. He goes, if I have a, if I, if someone is, if I have some fan that's, if or some follower that's saying crazy shit to me when I'm putting shit up, I fucking X them out. I'd rather have 20,000 quality motherfuckers than, and he goes also, he goes, and he always used to tell me, listen, motherfucker, see, you one of them smart motherfuckers, man. You smart, you good look, blah, blah, blah. He goes, a lot of motherfuckers are going to hate you, but fuck that. Don't ever change what the fuck you do. Never compromise your shit. Also, he said, um, he said, so what do you want to be? He goes, do you want to be, <laughs> do you want to be that motherfucker that makes $20 million and had to pull his pants down for it? Or do you want to be that 10 million motherfucker with an amazing Jewish team? <laughs> do you want to be the 10 million dollar motherfucking nigga with the, with, the, with, the, with the Jewish team? Or you want to pull your pants down for 20 million? 
what you want to be, motherfucker? I said, I want to be having an amazing Jewish team and make 10 million. <laughs> he goes, because the motherfucker making 10 million can still buy the same amount of houses, motherfucker. That's what he told me. Dane Cook told me he invited Patrice O'Neill to his oh, no. home in L.A. And he said Patrice O'Neill walked in the door, closed the door, and it was the first time in his life that he actually saw Patrice speechless and he was just looking around the house back and forth like yeah. an oscillating fan. Yeah. And then he just heard him say under his breath, fucking Barry Katz. <laughs> That motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> oh, shit. How long were you with Dane? For? About 17, 18 years. Damn. Next thing. Yeah. Anger issues. Oh, geez. There was a point where I was really angry. I, there was a point where I was Pollyanna. I would say Pollyanna at the beginning. I was just so happy-go-lucky. You know me. I was, and, hey, everything's going to be fine. And then there was a point where, you know, you're still smiling, but shit ain't going right. <laughs> it's like Cheshire shit, man. I was just like, eh, <laughs> I want to stab a motherfucker. <laughs> eh, I ain't getting nowhere. What the fuck? But I was, I got angry, man. Especially when I was bi-coastal in uh, Los Angeles. I started to get into, try to get into spirituality and law of attraction. And, but I was angry at the same time. I was angry. I was mad. I was fucked up, like mentally just, I was just, I didn't want to deal with reality. And then my girlfriend was like telling me like shit, like you, you, the reason why you're doing that old fucking magical bullshit. And I, we would get, we would get into fights. I want to choke her, man. You shut up. It's law of attraction. You, Vince, Norman Vincent Peale said, if you think positive things will come to you, bitch. <laughs> Now you leave me alone while I'm trying to think positive. I'll kick in your fucking stomach. <laughs> I was doing. I was fucked up. I was saying I'm really mean to her and just mean to myself and just angry at everybody. You know what I mean? But that's a natural thing. This business, when people say that this, if anybody goes in this business happy forever, that's on. That's no. That doesn't work. It's impossible because it's 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 up and down, and there's a lot of snakey people in it. You know, I'm not. It's not shitting on it. It just is what it is. And that's what I ran into. And I fucked up a lot of shit. I fucked up some money, fucking with people. And I'm just making a comeback, just like kind of getting my shit in order and just being a realist, growing the fuck up. You know you know what I mean? I made amends for shit. I wanted to make sure, oh man, it's, if anybody, if there's anybody I pissed off, and then I was like, you know what? I was young. I didn't know. But I don't have a problem. One thing I don't have a problem is, is manning up to shit. I don't. If I did something wrong, I don't have a problem. But I can't change the fact if someone just doesn't like me because they just don't like me. I can't I can't kiss your ass if you don't like me. Some people just don't like you. There's, there's nothing you can do about that. It's like, I just don't like that energetic, charismatic black guy right there. I don't like him. <laughs> I just don't like that motherfucker. You know what I mean? You know what I mean? So it's, it is what it is. So I've, it's okay. I'm comfortable with my lane. I'm comfortable in my lane. But in this lane that I'm comfortable in, I want to make sure I'm, being with, I'm with the right people. And we're on the same page. And I'm doing the right things. So I'm, and it's like, there's a point where you go, oh no, this is your lane. Just be in your lane, bro. Just, you know, before when you're young, you're like, I got to be in everybody's lane. No, fuck that. I want to do that too. I want to do, but I'm like, nah, just <laughs> I'm staying this fucking lane. You know what I mean? And age does that to you too. There's a point where you just get tired. Like you're just like, you know what? What am I running after? And then I'm going to tell you what changed me too. I just did a, um, 
I did a cancer patient wellness center uh, show for cancer patients in Montreal. And uh, they were all, some people were on their last leg. They're about to die, right? It's me, Jimmy Carr, Gina Yashere, Vladimir. Um, we, 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 it was, it was in, in a room in this wellness center. It's no microphone. You're just kind of talking. You know, I feel like a French comic. No mic. Just, and these people had cancer. Everybody has cancer. Some are survivors. Some are, and I did comedy and I just sat there and they were so appreciative and open. You could do whatever you want. They laughed at everything. And there were people, there was a lady literally about to, man. And that just said, what the fuck am I complaining about? You know what I mean? When I see something like that, you go, oh, I see what my purpose is. You know, we're always chasing and it's natural to want to chase when you see people driving car, nice cars and getting all this other shit. And you get compared. They like to compare you. Yeah, you want nice shit, man. But then when you look at that, I bet those people in this in this room, those cancer patients in this room were like, all I want is my health. I can give a fuck about a damn TV show. I can give a fuck about money, you know, and that really fucked me up because my mother passed away from cancer. So, you know, and all she wanted was like, I just want to be healthy. I don't give a shit. You know what I mean? And the fact that I have my health, that I have my and, you know, I have a I have a um an injury in my ankle. I have a fucked up ankle, you know, just some old sports injury. I'm like limping on it, complaining. And then I see a guy in Montreal with no legs walking on these like these little like these weird shoes. I don't know. They look like shoes. He had no legs, but he had a you know he had a clean shirt. And he was walking to the restaurant with confidence. I said, "What the fuck am I complaining about?" You know what I mean? So I that that meant a lot to me. So this this I think when I if I stay with that kind of mentality and really look at what really is matters in life, I think that's when the success, the better, the more, I mean, I'm, I'm not gonna say I'm not successful. I need to stop that shit. Cause to be in this business, to be doing it 20 some years, 20 years, doing what I want, traveling the world, it's a success, man. <laughs> you know what I mean? There are people, there are headliners right now that can't even fucking do the chuckle hut wherever, you know, we have that, we have a fictitious chuckle hut. They can't even do a headlining gig in a B room. They can't even do it because they don't have enough numbers or whatever. I can do that because I was able to build my reputation over the years and I still have a fan base. And I go, I can get money on a weekend. You know what I mean? So there is successes. So I, I've learned to really have perspective. I've, it's circumspection, actually. And I've had that. And it's, I think this is what I need. Because sometimes with men, and this is in you know Napoleon Hill, Napoleon Hill, and I've watched all his lectures on t on youtube from the 50s and he just it it is it, it, a point he even said it Mo, a lot of men usually men become more successful in their 40s and 50s when they're older because there's a lot of shit they got to get out whether it's sexual whether it's there's a lot of shit they battle with and usually when they're in their 40s and that's why you see that success that happens in that time and i'm naturally i'm i'm a little i'm way more focused i mean you know you say chasing pussy. No one's ever going to not like pussy, whatever. But I'm not what I was before. You know what I mean? It's like a natural progression. Even comedically, it's like, wow. It's like you just, you're just a different, it's just with maturity and age and you grow differently. So as far as success, you know, I'm, my, my strategy is better now. I'm better in meetings now. <laughs> I used to be like, like me, like me. I'm not that. I'm like, I want to be likable, but if you don't, okay, fine. 
you know, it's like, that's all right. But I'm to the point now. I'm I'm confident with what the fuck I want. I'm not worried about someone not liking me. I'm not in a goddamn high school lunchroom. You know what I mean? I'm a human being. I am a fucking artist and I have something to share with people. And it's not, it's, it's to, it's to, it's to help the world not to fucking, you know what I mean? I have something to share with people. I'm not competing with anybody. I'm like, this is, I just want to create and, and go to bed, man. I just want to create and live well and call it a day. That's it. And then fucking die. Tina Fey. Uh, cute. <laughs> Chris Rock. Profound. Snoop Dogg. Cool as fuck. Patton Oswald. Uh... Real alternative comedy. Shaquille O'Neal. Fucking big fucking kid. Denzel Washington. The greatest actor on the planet. Hecklers. Fucking tumors. <laughs> the late Greg Giraldo. <laughs> uh, genius. All right. Your proudest moment in show business. Oh, wow. Proudest moment in show business? Oh man, uh, um, I think my proudest moment was when, and it sounds so off, not even like a stand-up thing. When my father, when after Michael Richards did that whole went into that racial rant, I was with him like a week before he did that, which was weird. I did At the show. Laugh Factory yeah. where he said the N word. Yeah, but I was with Richard before that, and he had done that before, like to an old lady. I've seen him go Michael off. Richards. Yeah, Michael Richards go off and curse to call this lady a cunt. I saw, I was hosting. And he goes off and go, you fucking cut. Because it was kind of funny because he was, he gets on stage. He's not a stand-up comic. He gets on stage and he starts falling like Kramer. Does his little, <laughs> he does that. So he's getting laughs for about a minute. And then he realizes, hey, we're adults. We're not fucking five-year-olds. So you can fall. But, you know, a five, you know, a kid will be like, could you do it again? fall again he was doing that shit and some old lady said it was pretty funny she goes you're funnier on seinfeld and what did he say you fucking cunt <laughs> <laughs> fuck you you fucking yeah he went the fuck off and so i was outside i walked outside and people said hey yo uh michael richards just ran off stage he just fucking snapped and cursed everybody out and left and so I just see the microphone just rattling from him <laughs> leaving. I said, all right, give it up for Michael Richards. And so then I was, I saw, I saw him like a day or two later at this, at this he's really crazy. Uh, and he was just like talking to me saying, hey man, you're really great up there. Yeah, you're really good. You know, Michael Richards. And then I go back to New York and that shit happens. That whole N word shit. And then I get called, CNN calls me, Anderson Cooper show calls me they want you because i was doing like cnn like little comedy head talking head shit and i live down i don't live that far from cnn boom so they come call me upstairs and i get interviewed by john roberts now he's a white house correspondent so he's with fox so he goes he interviews me about the whole situation and i tell him you know i talk to him about how you know it's too bad what he did I mean, I don't think he is a racist, but he was just trying to get out of a comedic situation. He thought that was going to work, whatever. And I said, and I just told, I talked about how black people liked Kramer. I mean, he was he was the outcast in Seinfeld. We loved Kramer. He was disappointed, whatever. So then my father had seen that, 
interview. And he was so, because my father, all he watches is news and CNN. If you're on CNN, you're the shit to him. He's African, man. Africans watch CNN. And my father saw me on CNN. He called every African in Chicago. And everybody was, my father was like, man, he said, I saw you on CNN. I was so proud of you. You, 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 you spoke with good English. You made us so happy. You, you look educated. You look very nice. Oh, my father was so, that was my best. I, I, I will never forget that. That made me feel good. Not even comedy. Just my father seeing me on his favorite program. Because that's, that is the reason why I do the comedy I do. Because it is smart. I am a smart. I can't, I can't veer off. You know, I want to be that smart black dude. I don't give a shit. If it takes me longer, fine. Because my father, I always look at what would my mom and dad say. Because, in, you know, when you're in, a, in African traditions, Arabic traditions, you, your reputation is your people look at you and go, man, we saw you. We're watching you. You know what I mean? It's like everybody's your mom and dad. And culturally, when you have a strong culture like that, it's like everything, every move I make is very important. That's why I don't accept a lot of shit. I have to be that smart, intelligent guy because I was raised that way. My father said, always always have dignity, always have pride. I'm, don't be desperate. He said that. I don't want you to look stupid. We, we watch you. That's embarrassing to the Africans. Don't do that. And so in the streets, when I talk about my dad, all that stuff, Africans from all, from Ethiopia to Congo, they go, man, we love that stuff you do about us, man. That shit means a lot to me. And if it takes being a little broke, fuck it. You know what I mean? Oh, well, but I, I got to keep that. Dignity is what I'm keeping. So I'm going to be the $10 million motherfucker with the Jewish crew. <laughs> awesome. Your biggest disappointment in show business and how you used it to fuel yourself to the next level. <sighs> biggest disappointment? I've had disappointments. I would say getting with this one management that tried to take my money. I think it was that. You know, just being with the wrong people in Los Angeles when I was bi-coastal, you know? And then moving out of there and just like really like going, okay, I'm gonna really work on my stand-up and just take it to the next level. That's was that, that experience in Los Angeles was the biggest, I think I fucked up. Like, what am I doing, dude? You know what I mean? You didn't call me. <laughs> I did. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't call me. I fucked up. All right, last question. What yeah. advice would you have for the young person whose parents are from a foreign country and they're going from one city to the next? They have a dream of doing something. And what do they need to do to have the kind of career that you're having? I'm, you know. For a young comic, I, it's hard because with all this um, Instagrams and Facebooks, you know, they're using those things. Some of those people get fame through that. But if they're asking me, I'd be like, I'm, I'm an old school guy. So I say, you know, what you do is you do your best to get on stage as much as you can. You treat this comedy. It's not a hobby. It's a real craft. I say you watch people that came before you because in order for us, for order for the, the reason why I did this is because I saw people before me. I said, actually be a student of, not to sound corny, but be a student of the craft, man. Really, like, stage time is important. Writing is important. Finding your voice is important. Of course, you don't find it until 10, 15 years. But 
that should be your focus is like I don't give a shit about how many um, Instagram followers I have, YouTube followers I have. Comedy is a t- is a t- real time continuum. That's why I, there's a guy I do sketches with on on Instagram, and he's an Instagram star. And he I did some sketches with him. That's how my numbers got up. Because What's his name? His name is Rennie Lorenzo Cromwell. Really funny guy. He's a drama major in college. He's he's going to be graduating this year. He's just 21 years old, and I started doing some sh- sketches with him, and that's how my numbers got up which is great because of him. And, but he's like, I really want to do comedy. I want to do stand-up comedy. I said, cool, you're really funny on your Instagram, but I'm telling you, I'll bring you to an open mic, but it's a whole, it's a whole different ball game. And he showed up, and he, I said, how many minutes you got? He said, I can do about like three to five minutes. I said, three to five minutes is forever when you first start. But cool, I'm glad you showed up. I brought him to stand-up New York last year. And he went up. And I and he and he didn't know what to say. He was he he had it planned, and he just and it wasn't even that many people in the audience. It was like ten people in the audience, and he fucking just froze. And I told him, I said, I told you, it's a time continuum. It's not like in Instagram where you 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 film something, stop, send it out. Uh, <laughs> in uh, stand-up comedy, there's no editing. You you say a joke, okay, that didn't work. Next one, next one. You still got three more minutes. So it's a continuous thing. You know what I mean? You're in the present moment and you need to get initial laughter. It's not like a buildup of fans. That, no, they need to laugh right now within this time. You know, so that's what I tell people. If you want to get into comedy, stand up, know it is a craft. To me, it's a sport. I think it's a physical sport. You know, to in order to become a better hitter, you got to go to the batting cages. and You got to hit a thousand balls. You got to go to the comedy clubs and you got to tell your jokes a thousand fucking times. And you got to do a thousand shows to a thousand different types of people, a thousand different types of situations, thousands and thousands and thousands of times. Just so you can say hi comfortably. <laughs> just, to, just to get on stage and go, yo, what's up? That took thousands of times to do it comfortably. Remember when you were first doing comedy and you were nervous and the microphone would be like in your leg? You wouldn't even untie it because you were so nervous. You're like, I'm just going to sit here. I don't want to untangle that i'm not even that good to untangle. but you know what i mean i every you got to do shit a thousand times just to take the mic out of the stand normally just to move the mic to the side normally that takes a thousand times you know just to say hello to hello to the what if the mic unplugs if you're if you have to do that a thousand times to, to recover from that you got to do a thousand 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 million shows to say the punchline right you got to say a, a joke a thousand times to change the punchline to finally change the punchline, to t- finally st- uh, um, put the accent on a different word. That's what made it better after doing it a thousand times. You know what I mean? You have to fucking, you got to hit that ball a thousand times. So I said, if you take it that way, that's, I think, how you become a guy like myself or a guy like Attell or a guy like Burr and all these guys. You got to put the fucking work in, man. Godfrey. Yes. Awesome. Oh, cool, man. What a great, great podcast. This you were good. fantastic. Man. Thank you. Really, really fantastic. I'm so grateful that you did this. This was really good. I'm not going to front. This was you're good, man. This is really good, man. Good. Like, you really know how to ask questions. You really like, this is good. I'm not going to front. I tell, I'll, I'll recommend it to people. I'll say, you need to do that podcast. This shit's good. This was <laughs> awesome.
This is an episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. If you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell tell all all your friends. friends. Okay, I'm going to scroll through the list of people who sent me a message, a review on the iTunes comment review section. And one of these people will be a lucky winner. And they'll get to attend a podcast live with one of my guests, meet them, shake their hand, ask them a few questions, or else if they're out of town, out of state, or out of the country, we'll Skype them in or FaceTime them or anything like that so they can be there. Why not? So let me look here randomly and pick somebody. All right, landing on Podcast Addict 2, July 25th, 2017. Heading reads, I never thought I'd find the people he interviews interesting. Five stars. The review reads, Jay Moore was my gateway to Barry Katz. I went back and binge listened from the beginning. I have found that people I thought would be interesting are interesting. But among the most interesting are the people who I had never heard of or who I had no interest in hearing. So my recommendation is listen to them all. Thank you so much, Podcast Addict 2. I really appreciate it. You are a winner. Special thanks to our new sponsor, AquaTrue, the first countertop water purifier using multi-stage reverse osmosis technology. Check it out. Go to industrystandardwater.com. Takes you directly to their website. Type in the code 100. Save yourself $100. I have one of these. It's amazing. Start turning your tap water into the best tasting water. Industrystandardwater.com. As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You get all the money, drive that fancy car. All the people love you, cause you're going for life is for the dreamers. They have all to gain It's never quite over So it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley A fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to BarryKatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast. Leave a comment and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.